We read the sacred scriptures together this morning in the book of Proverbs, chapter 8. In God's providence, as we have been going through the book of Proverbs in our afternoon sermons, we have come up to about the area of chapter 8, and that matches well with Lord's Day 13 of the Catechism, so I chose to read it this morning instead. Proverbs 8. Doth not wisdom cry, and understanding put forth her voice? She standeth in the top of high places by the way, in the places of the paths. She crieth at the gates, at the entry of the city, at the coming in at the doors. Unto you, O men, I call, and my voice is to the sons of man. O ye simple, understand wisdom, and ye fools, be ye of an understanding heart. Hear, for I will speak of excellent things, and the opening of my lips shall be right things. For my mouth shall speak truth, and wickedness is an abomination to my lips. All the words of my mouth are in righteousness. There is nothing froward or perverse in them. They are all plain to him that understandeth, and write to them that find knowledge. Receive my instruction, and not silver, and knowledge rather than choice gold. For wisdom is better than rubies, and all the things that may be desired are not to be compared to it. I, wisdom, dwell with prudence, and find out knowledge of witty inventions. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, Pride and arrogancy and the evil way and the froward mouth do I hate. Counsel is mine and sound wisdom. I am understanding. I have strength. By me kings reign and princes decree justice. By me princes rule and nobles, even all the judges of the earth. I love them that love me, and those that seek me early shall find me. Riches and honor are with me, yea, durable riches and righteousness. My fruit is better than gold, yea, than fine gold, and my revenue than choice silver. I lead in the way of righteousness, in the midst of the paths of judgment, that I may cause those that love me to inherit substance, and I will fill their treasures. The Lord possessed me in the beginning of his way, Before his works of old, I was set up from everlasting, from the beginning, or ever the earth was. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no fountains abounding with water, before the mountains were settled, before the hills, was I brought forth. While as yet he had not made the earth, nor the fields, nor the highest part of the dust of the world, When he prepared the heavens, I was there. When he set a compass upon the face of the depth, when he established the clouds above, when he strengthened the fountains of the deep, when he gave to the sea his decree that the waters should not pass his commandment, when he appointed the foundations of the earth, then I was by him as one brought up with him, and I was daily his delight rejoicing always before him, rejoicing in the habitable part of his earth, and my delights were with the sons of men. 
Now therefore hearken unto me, O ye children, for blessed are they that keep my ways. Hear instruction and be wise, and refuse it not. Blessed is the man that heareth me, watching daily at my gates, waiting at the posts of my doors. For whoso findeth me findeth life, and shall obtain favor of the Lord. But he that sinneth against me wrongeth his own soul. All they that hate me love death. Let's consider together the teaching of the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 13. Why is Christ called the only begotten Son of God, since we are also the children of God? Because Christ alone is the eternal and natural Son of God, but we are children adopted of God by grace for his sake. Wherefore callest thou him our Lord? Because he hath redeemed us, both body, both soul and body, from all our sins, not with gold or silver, but with his precious blood, and hath delivered us from all the power of the devil, and thus hath made us his own property. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, this morning we consider together the third and fourth significant names of our Savior that appear in the Apostles' Creed when we confess, I believe in Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, our Lord. We are very familiar with these third and fourth names as well as the first two because they also appear in many, many places in the New Testament. The name only begotten Son of God and the name our Lord. But this morning we want to investigate the meaning of these two names. We want to explore what these names really mean and what do they mean over against the teachings of the many heresies that have been propagated throughout the centuries of Christian history, what do these two names mean over against the teachings of the many cults that have popped up throughout the world, throughout history? And what do these two names mean over against the teaching of modern theology that in the past couple of centuries has spread like a cancer throughout the Christian church and has corrupted the churches of all denominations, the modern theology that makes Jesus nothing more than a mere man. How are we to understand these names? We're going to consider them this morning in the light of all of the Holy Scriptures teaching, including the Old and New Testaments, including what we read in Proverbs 8, and we're going to consider these names in light of the teaching 
of the historic confession of the Christian church of all ages from the time of the apostles in a straight line all the way down to us today. As with all doctrines of the faith, the Heidelberg Catechism also shows in regard to this doctrine the gospel significance and the precious comfort of knowing the only begotten Son of God as our Lord. So let's consider this subject under the theme, Believing in God's Son, Our Lord. Notice, first, God's only begotten Son. Secondly, the Lord who bought us. Thirdly, our adoption for his sake. Why is Christ called the only begotten Son of God? Back in Lord's Day 11, the Catechism asked us why the Son of God is called Jesus. Then in Lord's Day 12, the Catechism asked us why Jesus is called Christ. And now in this Lord's Day, we are asked why Christ is called the only begotten Son of God. At this point in the Catechism, it is understood that we believe that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah whom God promised to send to bring salvation. And now the question that we face is, why is this Christ called the only begotten Son of God? Why is he given that name? The answer to that question, beloved, is not that this is just a nice figure of speech For the man, the mere man, whom God promised back in Psalm 2 to send as the Messiah. The psalm that we just sang, the psalm in which God prophesied to set his king upon his holy hill of Zion. His king who would declare the decree, the Lord hath said, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee, and I have given to thee the nations as thy inheritance. The answer to our question this morning is not that in Psalm 2, God was merely teaching us a nice figure of speech that he would give as a name to this mere man who would be a king and a messiah. Nor is the answer to the question that this man who has come into the world, this Jesus who is the Christ, God adopted in some special and unique sense out of all of the mass of the human race because this man, Jesus, unlike all other men, was the most godlike because more than any other man, he showed himself to be like God, righteous and holy and good and wise. That is not the answer to the question. Back in Psalm 2, when God prophesied through David that he would raise up his anointed from the line of David, that he would set his king upon his holy hill of Zion, and that this king who would come would say, The Lord has said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. God was prophesying that the Messiah would be none other than his only begotten Son. 
He is given this name because this is who he is. This is his deepest identity. He is the only begotten Son of God. And therefore, in many places in the New Testament, God calls him precisely that. In Mark 1, verse 1, we read, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. In Luke 1, verse 35, the angel Gabriel came to Nazareth and said to the Virgin Mary, That holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. In John 1, verse 18, or verse 14, we read, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. In John 1, verse 18, we read, No man hath seen God at any time, the only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. In Matthew 16, verse 16, Peter made that great confession. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And in many other places, Christ is called the Son of God, the only begotten of the Father, the only begotten Son, because that's who he is. He is given this name because, as the Catechism teaches us, Christ is not a mere man. But Christ and Christ alone is the eternal and natural Son of God. Christ is called the only begotten Son of God. And I might point out to you here that many of the modern translations of the Bible do not capture that meaning and that translation of the original Greek word properly. But you find, for example, the translation, the only Son of God. The proper translation is the only begotten Son of God. And that's a very important phrase, vitally important for understanding the truth of who Christ is. There are many sons and daughters of God, as we will see, but Christ alone is the begotten Son of God, the eternal Son of God, the natural Son of God. That means simply this, that Christ alone is God. One who is the natural Son of God is himself God. He is the natural Son of God. That means that one who has the nature of God has begotten him so that he also has the nature of God. It means he, the Son, who is in his nature God, has received that nature from the Father who also in his nature is God. Christ is the only begotten Son of God. He is the only person in all of reality who is begotten, God of God. God begotten of and by God, brought forth from God as God. To illustrate that, and hopefully to help us understand that, just think of how 
creatures are begotten. Just take an animal, take a rabbit. A rabbit has the nature of a rabbit. And when a rabbit begets an offspring, that offspring is also a rabbit. Any creature that has the nature of a rabbit has been begotten by a rabbit. Any creature that has been begotten by a human is a human. We are humans begotten by humans. So if Christ is called the only begotten Son of God, the meaning is he is God. But since we do not believe in more than one God, this expression also teaches us that he is God with the Father within the Trinity. He is the Son of God within the being of God. Father and Son are both God. Father begets the Son. The Son is begotten of the Father within the being of God. Do you believe that? Do you believe Christ and Christ alone? Unlike you, unlike me, and unlike all other humans, is not a mere human, but he is the begotten Son of God. That means that Christ alone is the eternal Son. He has always been the Son of God. He never had a beginning. He was never created. He was never made. He was never brought into being for the first time. In John 1, verses 1 through 3, we read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him. That word is the only begotten Son of God. He was in the beginning with God. He was and is God. When John wrote the first chapter of his gospel, the Holy Spirit was inspiring him to teach us the Christian interpretation of Proverbs 8. So from John chapter 1, we as Christians go back to Proverbs 8 and we understand what Solomon was saying there. Proverbs chapter 8 is a beautiful personification of wisdom. The whole book of Proverbs is a book of wisdom, God's wisdom. And the 8th chapter of Proverbs is crucial for understanding the whole book. Proverbs chapter 8 sets forth before us wisdom itself. Wisdom steps forward before us and speaks. It's a personification. But that wisdom who speaks, John teaches us, is none other than the Word who would become flesh. That wisdom is none other than the only begotten Son who would come into the world. He is none other than Christ himself. So turn with me to verse 22 of Proverbs 8. Beginning at verse 22, Christ, who speaks to us in this chapter, shows us that he is the eternal Son of God. Christ speaks and says, The Lord possessed me in the beginning of his way before his works of old. 
Jehovah, the one true and living God, possessed me, he says. He possessed me in the beginning of his way, before his works of old. Now, even the heretics in the ancient church admitted that here, Christ is speaking. The heretics, like Arius and the Arians who followed him, they had to admit that Christ is speaking here in this text. But based on a mistranslation in the Greek version of the Bible that they used, known as the Septuagint, they believed that Christ was here saying, the Lord created me in the beginning of his way. That was the mistranslation in the Greek version of the Bible that was used in the early church. Jehovah created me in the beginning of his way. And it's very unfortunate that some of our modern English versions continue that mistranslation. And you can find here in this verse that it says in that English version, the Lord created me or formed me or brought me into being in the beginning of his way. That's not a correct interpretation or translation of the original Hebrew When you go back to the original Hebrew language that Solomon wrote with his pen, the Hebrew word there is not the word for creation. The word that we find, for example, in Genesis 1, verse 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. But the word here in Proverbs 8, verse 22 is, the Lord acquired me in the beginning of his way. The Lord acquired me. Now, we still have to try to understand what that means. What does that mean? For us human beings, if we acquire something, it means we didn't have it before. And then we acquired it, and then we possessed it. But from the rest of Scripture, we know that cannot be the explanation of the text. That cannot be what Christ is saying about himself here. Because wisdom is speaking here. And that would be to say that there was a time when God did not have wisdom. There was a time when God did not possess wisdom. But then he acquired it. He went out and he got it and acquired it. And then he possessed wisdom. And we know that's not true. God is wise from eternity to eternity. God has always possessed wisdom. And therefore, what Christ is saying in the text is that the Lord, who eternally acquired his wisdom and possessed it, eternally brought it forth and eternally acquired it and eternally possessed it, he also acquired it. He also brought it forth. He also possessed it in the beginning of his way. the beginning of his creation of the heavens and the earth. In that time before time, when God began to create the heavens and the earth, also then, just as from all eternity, he brought forth wisdom, acquired that wisdom, and possessed that wisdom. And that wisdom is none other than his only begotten Son. Christ goes on to explain further, Verse 23, he says, I was set up from everlasting, from the beginning, or ever the earth was. 
When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no fountains abounding with water, before the mountains were settled, before the hills was I brought forth. While as yet he had not made the earth, nor the fields, nor the highest part of the dust of the world, when he prepared the heavens, I was there. Christ is telling us here that before the foundation of the world, he was brought forth. He was begotten. That's the meaning of that word. The word begotten means to bring forth, to generate, to produce, to conceive as a father conceives a son. He says, I was brought forth by my father. I was begotten even before the beginning of the earth. Before the foundation was set, before there was even a single grain of dust in reality, I was there. I was brought forth. I was begotten. He says, when God prepared the heavens, I was there. When he set a compass upon the face of the depth, when he established the clouds above, when he strengthened the fountains of the deep, when he gave to the sea his decree that the waters should not pass his commandment, when he appointed the foundations of the earth, then I was by him as one brought up with him, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him. Christ is not saying here that God brought him forth into being out of nothing just before he created the world, as Arius taught. That's the ancient heresy. That from eternity there was only God, the Father, by himself, and no other. But then God the Father created God the Son just before he made the world. And then through the Son, he created the world. That's not what he's saying. When Christ says that I was there before the beginning, he means he was there in eternity. He means he was always there. He means there was never a time when he didn't exist. He was eternally begotten. Do you believe that? You believe that Christ was the daily delight of God, rejoicing always before him, within the Trinity, before the foundation of the world. As John puts it, the only begotten Son in the bosom of the Father, in the bosom of the Father, embraced by the Father and embracing the Father, and rejoicing in his presence from all eternity. That's the confession of the Christian church from the very beginning. That's our confession. Until the end of time, I believe in Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, our Lord. Now the glorious gospel is that God has sent forth this, his only begotten Son, into the world in his great love. John 3, verse 16. God so loved the world that he gave what? 
His only begotten Son. This precious, beloved Son who was eternally in His bosom, rejoicing, delighting, constantly, eternally in the presence of the Father. He sent forth into the world in His love for sinners like you and me and many others throughout the nations of the world. He sent him into the world to become our Lord. And that's the second name that we are considering this morning, to become our Lord. As the children of Adam and Eve, whom God created in the beginning, we fell into sin. We fell into depravity. We became corrupt. And in our totally corrupt state, we became doomed to perish for all eternity in hell. We were born into this world with that depravity clinging to us. We were born into this world with nothing but sin and corruption and wickedness. Doomed, lost, blind, incapable of saving ourselves. We came into this world deserving to perish. And with every single sin that we commit, we make ourselves worthy of that everlasting damnation in the fires of God's wrath in hell. We're worthy of that because this glorious Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is worthy of our love. He is worthy of our praise. He is worthy of our obedience and our adoration, but we refuse to give it to Him. We love ourselves more than Him. We love our own pleasures and treasures more than Him. We choose the things of this world, and we don't choose Him. We're selfish. We're full of hatred. We're full of pride, and therefore we're worthy of everlasting destruction because of our sins. And we must perish for those sins because God is just. He is not only an adorable, glorious, gracious God, but he's a just, righteous, and holy God. And therefore he demands that every sin that we commit against him be punished with everlasting destruction in hell. And therefore we must perish Because God is not a God that clears the name of the guilty without punishment. But he is a God who punishes iniquity. Every iniquity, every sin must be punished with everlasting punishment. And therefore, we come into this world doomed. We come into this world trapped. We come into this world with no escape that we can find or create or make for ourselves. And this is the gospel, that God so loved us, that God would manifest his love for us, that he sent nothing less than his only begotten son to come into the world, to clothe himself with our flesh and blood, our body and soul, and take upon himself all of the sins that we committed in our body and in our soul. To redeem us, to become our Lord. 
God sent his only begotten son. Could there have been anything more precious to him? Anything more dear to him than the son whom he eternally brings forth and whom he eternally dwells with and delights in and rejoices in, in the Trinity, to send him forth, to take upon himself all of our depravity and sin and wickedness, to redeem our body and soul fully and completely. And so the only begotten Son, he came down from heaven, he came forth from the Trinity, he took upon himself a body and soul and was born of the Virgin and was named Jesus and walked on this earth to the cross. And there at the cross, he gave himself for us to pay the price of our redemption. And the price of your redemption, the price of my redemption, was nothing less than his own precious blood. The price of the redemption was no worthless gold or silver, Catechism reminds us. Oh, how precious we think gold is. Glittering gold and glittering silver and rubies and money. And wisdom tells us in Proverbs 8, I am more precious than rubies. I am more precious than silver. Don't seek silver and gold and rubies, but seek me. And the price of your redemption and mine was nothing less than his precious blood. And that comes from 1 Peter 1, verses 18 and 19, where he teaches us that we have not been redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of a lamb without spot or without blemish, who was foreordained from before the foundation of the world to give his life on the cross. The only begotten Son of God. The one who was there in the beginning. The one who was there when God laid the foundations of the earth. The one who was there when God prepared the heavens and the fountains of the deep and caused the waters to spring up and the clouds to send down their rain. The one who was there when God laid the stars in the heavens above. He redeemed us with the most precious currency we can imagine. Not dollars and cents, but his own blood. He gave himself to that cross. He wasn't killed. He gave himself. He shed his blood. Every single drop of blood that flowed out of his hands and his feet and from the, the crown of thorns pressing into his head and the spear in his side. Every drop of blood which was a, a symbol of his life. His life pouring out of him. His life that he gave for us. His precious life. So that he went down unto death. He went down under the billows of the wrath of God and suffered the penalty of our sins. That's how he redeemed you and me. You know what the word redeemed means? 
It means he purchased you. Just as he says, the Lord acquired me and possessed me in the beginning of his way. The Lord acquired you and possessed you by the shedding of his blood. He bought you and me. And he made us, body and soul, his own property. That's what we confess in the very first Lord's Day. What is thy only comfort in life and death? That I'm not my own, but I belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, because he purchased me with his own precious blood. That's why we call him our Lord. That's what it means. My Lord, I belong to you. The Catechism points out still more. The gospel is that God loved us so much that he sent his only begotten Son to deliver us from all the power of the devil. From the devil. Because in the beginning, in our first parents, we were beguiled wickedly by the serpent in the Garden of Eden to eat that forbidden fruit and to come under his power and dominion. The devil knew that by enticing us to turn against God and to eat the fruit in disobedience to God, we would become his slaves. We would lose our freedom to serve God, and we would become the slaves of Satan. He knew that. And so he beguiled us to take that fruit, to take the plunge, to become his servants. We became victims of the beguilement of Satan. But having become victims, we became his willing slaves. We must make no mistake about that. We became the willing slaves of this evil and dark Lord. We became those who hated God with all of our being and who loved the devil with all our being. Do you believe that about yourself? Do we recognize that in ourselves, that still in us, that old flesh that clings to us reveals what we were by nature and what we are by nature, that we love Satan, we hate God? They really were slaves to the devil. We love all of the things that the devil proposes to us as the way of happiness. We love his lies. We love his pleasures. We love his kingdom. We turn our backs on God, who is our true happiness and our true joy and our true life. And foolishly, we walk in the ways of the devil. That's what we were by nature. That's what we still fall back into in our old man. Slavery to the devil. Willing slavery. It's like a dark and forbidden romantic relationship that ought not to be. A terrible, abusive relationship in which the husband abuses the wife, and yet the wife still loves the abusive husband. That's what it's like. 
Satan abusing us, abusing mankind, and yet mankind still loving him, still devoted to him, still sticking with him, not willing to leave him. But God loved us so much that he sent his only begotten son into the world to do what? To deliver us. To break that relationship with Satan. To break those chains that held us in slavery to the devil. And God's Son alone could do that. Love for Satan is a perilous love. Because love for Satan and the ways of Satan ends in hell. And in our foolishness, we would march all the way there with him. God sent his son into the world as the only one by his almighty power who could break the chains of Satan, who could crush the head of the serpent, who could deliver us by shedding his precious blood, could take away from Satan all rights of ownership, all rights to us by claiming those rights for himself and making us his property. Only Christ could deliver us from the vice grip of his lies, the sprinkling of his precious blood upon our hearts. Christ alone is able to convince us the devil is a wicked master, and we are foolish to follow him, so that we turn and return to God In Hebrews 2, verses 14 and 15, we read that the Son of God took upon himself our flesh and blood so that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetimes subject to bondage. The only begotten Son of God is our Lord, not the devil anymore. He has broken those chains of slavery to Satan. And he has made us his property. And so he speaks to us in Proverbs 8, verses 32 through 36. Therefore now hearken unto me, O ye children. For blessed are they that keep my ways. Hear instruction and be wise, and refuse it not. Blessed is the man that heareth me, watching daily at my gates, waiting at the posts of my doors. For whoso findeth me findeth life, and shall obtain favor of the Lord. But he that sinneth against me wrongeth his own soul. All they that hate me love death. Do you hate wisdom? Do you hate the instruction of the gospel? Do you despise the words of Christ who presents himself to you this morning as the only way of salvation, the only way of redemption and deliverance, then be warned, those who hate Christ choose death. But blessed are those who hear his voice and refuse it not, but watch daily at his gates, And trust in him. This is our confession. 
I believe in the only begotten Son, our Lord. Those who make that confession are children adopted of God by grace for his sake. The Catechism asks, why is he called the only begotten Son of God? If we are also called the children of God, And the answer is that Christ alone is the eternal and natural Son of God. We are children of God by adoption. We who believe in Christ are children by adoption. When Christ came to redeem us with his precious blood, to break the chains of the devil and to make us his property, that transaction in which he bought us was not like the many transactions that have happened throughout human history in which men purchased other men to be their slaves, in which men, through silver and gold, purchased other human beings to force them to work for them as their slaves, who took them into their possession but who wouldn't allow them to live within their house with them as part of their family, but forced them to live outside of the house, somewhere on the property, perhaps in a shack or some dilapidated house, and forced them to work for free under the hard whip of the taskmaster. It wasn't like that. That was the way it was under Satan. That's not the way it is under Christ. When Christ purchased us and made us his property, it is to be compared rather to the gracious and merciful act of a man and a woman who choose an orphan child to be their own. Who choose that little child, that little boy or girl who has no father and no mother, and who go through the long legal process and sign the legal papers to make that orphan their own, to take him or her into their home, into their house, to give them a seat around their table, to give them a warm bed to sleep in, to give them food and drink, to protect them from dangers to love and cherish them as their own son or daughter. That's how we are to compare what Christ did. That's what God has done through Christ. We are the children of God through adoption. Ephesians 1 verse 5 says that God predestinated us unto the adoption of sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. Even before the foundation of the world, when God as the Father dwelled with his Son in the joys of the Trinity, God predestinated us. He determined that we would be his sons and his daughters through Jesus Christ. 
And then we read in Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5, And God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. So having predestinated us to be his sons, he sent his Son to redeem us so that we would receive the adoption. And finally, Romans 8, verse 15, Ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. We're not like the slave outside, far from the, the, the warm hearth and crackling fireplace of the mansion, but we're children in the mansion, sitting by the warmth of the fire with father and mother, crying, Abba, Father. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, John writes, that we should be called the sons of God. What a comfort to know the great love of God who has adopted us to be his children. We who were orphans and slaves who have become the sons and daughters of God. That's the gospel. Let us believe that gospel. Let us believe in the only begotten Son, our Lord. For John writes that believing in him, we have life through his name. Amen. Our gracious God, we give thanks for this precious gospel, for these blessed truths made known to us in the scriptures. We pray, Father, that we would find comfort in the knowledge that we are adopted sons and daughters through the death and precious blood of thy only begotten Son. May we be comforted that we have been set free from the chains of Satan whom we served. And grant, Father, that we would now live as thy sons and daughters, thankful and joyful and hopeful 